To ship, of course. It's that time again. Welcome to the Ship Show, where we talk about build engineering, DevOps, release management, and everything in between. I'm Paul Reed, Sober Build Eng on Twitter and at SoberBuildEngineer.com. And who's with me this evening for episode 11? Uh, this is Yusuf at BuildScientist on Twitter and BuildScientist.com. This is Beth Thomas at CheesePlus on Twitter. How was everyone's uh, Black Friday Cyber Monday? It was great. Did you guys buy any new toys? No, I, I don't. I never buy anything over Black Friday, Cyber Monday. I don't. I just don't. Yeah. I bought. I bought one thing on Amazon just because it was a lightning deal, and I got like a gift card. But I was gonna buy the thing anyway. It was just convenient to wait. Right. Right. I got sucked into the Apple Store, and they were doing like a hundred dollars off random things, which is really nothing for them. They're probably just trying to clear out their inventory. But I, I hate to admit that I bought a new Apple toy. Oh so. darn. I well, yeah, but yeah. Anyway, they, they got me, those Black Friday Apple people. So tonight we're going to be talking about languages of the programming variety. Is there such thing as a RelEng or DevOps language du jour? If so, what is it and is it changing? And if it is changing, what's driving that change? So we'll be talking about that. But first up, news and views as we always do. There was an interesting news item about a weird NTP bug that caused some issues for people, I guess. This happened right before Thanksgiving. One of the U.S. Naval Observatory clocks, apparently, which was one of the authoritative time sources here in the United States, a lot of the NTP infrastructure is driven off of, apparently its clock somehow reverted to the year 2000 and then propagated that time out. And so we'll link to the story on it. It was kind of interesting, though, that it was basically a Y2K issue. Did you guys see any problems with this? I know we talked about the the leap second issue a, a few episodes ago with NTP. It seems like NTP isn't may not be as stable as we thought. I don't know. Yeah, I I, I didn't see this propagate anywhere, but uh, it's kind of scary that uh, this could kind of happen, especially at the Naval Observatory. I mean, I don't know if that's is that run by the Navy or is that? I think it's that's a good question. I, I think it's run by NIST. Okay. Institutes of standards and timing. But yeah, you know what would be curious, what I would be interested in is, is do they have any, I mean, I'm sure they monitor their servers, but do they have like a, a stupid C program that just takes the time and a, a, like a, a Nagios alert that it announces like, hey, time shifted in a big way and in the wrong direction or to let them know? I'd, I'd be curious to know like how they found out about this other than obviously like it's it's 2000 again. So well, the, the article says the downstream time sources also got this value. So maybe somebody notified them and said, hey, guys, it's not the year 2000. It's not time what's to, going on? Yeah, what's going on? It's not, it's not time to party like it's 1999. Nope. <laughs> I'm, I'm, now, I'm now worried that like several systems may have done this and I just didn't notice. That would be like, I now, now I'm thinking I may, may need to add an alert for all systems to say, is it the year 2000? Just yeah. to make sure. Just to rule out things like this. That's your Nagios check. Like, is it 2000? Yes or no? Exactly. And it's funny, too. I don't know. Uh, again, this happened around Thanksgiving. It happened on the 20th. So it happened sort of around Thanksgiving. It's like, that would be a weird pager incident to get. It's like, time shifted by 12 years. You know, that was actually, I think, the most surprising thing for me about the, the Black Friday, Cyber Monday stuff was the fact that most of the people that I knew working at ops were able to like stand down and like everything went smoothly. And like, I was like, something must be wrong because everything's going really well this weekend. 
Well, you're doing a little foreshadowing. Actually, our next episode, we're going to be talking about uh, release engineering DevOps over the holidays. So we'll get into that next episode. But yeah, I, I noticed, I think Sasha said that, that uh, her team was kind of on alert. And then uh, on Friday, things were looking good. So they got to actually go have a real holiday as opposed to a chain to the dinner table with a pager in one hand and a fistful of turkey in the other. Yeah, we were, it was really nice. I, we had the same kind of experience where it was just like, oh, oh, everything's okay. Whew. All right, all right. Done your job for the rest of the year, so you get to have these three days off. <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was it was a uh, it was it was much nicer than years past. I've I've I remember much more difficult years. So. Yeah, yeah, me too. Well, next up, so uh, Mozilla, well, CNET reported it as quietly ceases Firefox sixty four bit builds. I don't know how quiet it was because this made Slashdot as well. But yeah, apparently they've decided to turn off. Nightly builds of, of Win Win sixty four. Did you guys see this this story? Yeah. So I don't know. There's there's something where they said that they couldn't uh, that I didn't buy. They said they couldn't distinguish between their sixty four bit and thirty two bit bugs, like in their when they were being submitted from the bug tracker. Well, so I, I think they're, they're talking about crash reports and crash reports, right. But I know I know for a fact that you can you can discern those are easy to discern from each other. I've seen that done. So it's I know it's not. I know it's not necessarily difficult to do. Yeah, I think I should go see if there's actually a bug on that since their bug tracker is open. But I'll bet you, I'll bet you that it's it's actually just they could fix it, and it's more of a, yeah, we don't have the resources to fix it. You know, it's an interesting shift. I mean, whenever something like this happens, there's always kind of a segment of the people using Firefox still saying, you know, if you do this, I'm moving to Chrome. I'm so so. It's hard to actually parse out what's going on here because there's just a lot of noise from people saying, OMG, if you do this, I'm leaving you. But it is interesting that the the main reason it seems like they said that there was that that was polluting their data, their crash data, but also that the focus right now for that team is Firefox OS, and that's why they did it. That's, you know, uh, still don't think you should do it. Yeah, well, you know, the interesting thing, too, I mean, I think there's a bit about forgetting that, you know, and, and not forgetting, I, I think they acknowledge this, but it's always an effort. And Seth, you know, you were mentioning this, it's like, if you have regressions that get introduced into the 64-bit build, but you're not even covering them at all, it's really hard to find that window again. Like, if you turn them off for a year, which is basically what they're kind of talking about doing. Yeah, and I know we. I've been in positions where we've had to have like 64-bit builds for Windows because we were running into limitations of the 32-bits. So it it enforced code quality, which was nice, um, but only out of necessity. Right. Well, and you know, the the a lot of the people that seem to be kind of complaining about this issue or raising it were t- were people that were actually running into, I guess, the four gig limit with they had so many tabs open, so they you know they, it was an addressing issue. There, but I, I sort of understand the flip side, which was they're saying the main problem is they're doing a bunch of weird things with plugins now. So actually, I think this was driven by they just released a feature about cl- the click to play, uh-huh. so that plugins don't automatically launch. And so when you have the lack of sixty-four bit plugins, you basically I, I saw something in there about you. they had they were going to have to ship thirty-two bit DLLs anyway, and so it was like a bad experience. I, I don't know. The one thing I will say, and this seems to happen a lot, it was kind of, you know, there's a pattern of announcements like this get posted to a news group, and then there's like 
a few messages about it, and then a bug gets filed, and it's it's not so much a discussion. It's sort of this is what we're doing. Um, yeah. And if you don't like it, go use Chrome or <laughs> go use something else, uh, which is interesting, Chief. I think actually I was trying to see, and I'm looking at the forum post right now. The funny thing about the go use Chrome, because a lot of people are saying that, is they were saying Chrome doesn't have 64-bit builds on Windows either. So it's like, hmm. it's like good luck with that. I've I've been using 64-bit Chrome for a while, so on this, Windows. Well, I thought I I thought they had a 64-bit build on Windows, but I may be mistaken. When I was running Windows uh, way back when, yeah. I also think it was interesting how CNET said quietly ceases. Well, that's that's basically saying, are you paying attention to forum posts in Firefox forums? Right. So, right. Well, it's perhaps louder or quieter than it depends on depends on your audience. Well, this always happens, right, where the media says, oh, they quietly did this, and the response is always, we don't quietly do anything, you just need to know where to look. So I think there's both sides yeah. have an argument to make, but I thought it was the headline was very sort of, sky is falling. <laughs> but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens when they turn them back on, if, if it takes a long time to get Win64 Firefox back up to par. And of course, by then, too, you know, the major plugins, right, are Flash, and they're trying to push HTML5 and HTML5 video, so maybe that won't matter. But I, I have to say I agree with, I still think having coverage of it, having a Tinderbox build, you know, just to see that it compiles, they should still be able to do that. But I don't know, maybe they're trying to avoid a lot of people using it. Yeah, that's not, a, that's not always a good thing, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, well, that's what I would do. I would keep doing the builds even if they were unsupported. Our last news and views item tonight comes from a post from Mike Hoy, who uh, was playing Zelda with his daughter and decided that uh, it would be much more adventurous to have Link be uh, a young woman trying to save, I guess, his his son and her younger brother. So he wrote a binary patch to flip all of the pronouns, which is some elegant hacking, but also pretty cool. I wanted to ask Seth if you had ever heard of any of the, anyone doing this in the gaming industry and, and uh, what you thought of it. No, no, I've never heard of anyone doing this specifically. Like, this is... You, the people do, like, you know, ROM hacks all the time. Like, go with hex editors and do things, like, to, to a lot of, like... Usually classic games, but you can do that with just about anything. But to do this particular, like, the pronoun flipping, which is really cool because um, if you actually, like, Nintendo's art style for Wind Waker was very, like, pastel. Like, it, uh, Link is always, like, or at least a lot of times, just, like, gender neutral. Right. Uh, so this was, like, this actually didn't, you could play the game and actually use use uh, flipped pronouns and it would be wonderful. Like, you would you would not, like, especially, like, a child who was playing it would not know. Right. Well, and it's interesting, too. Not, it wasn't just the pronouns. It was funny. It was like, uh, there's lots of milady replacing my lad and master, which I thought was a lot of fun. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's great to see somebody do this and then kind of release it. to. Yeah. I like I liked that he was... So I just... I saw... I used to use... I mean, X-Delta 3 is, is the what he was using to apply the binary patch. I remember using that for all kinds of things, like when doing doing some of the things with games. Um, yeah. So. It's like hardcore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one of my favorite hacks, we'll link, we'll link to it in the show notes, one of my favorite hacks talking about that is there's a hack for Grand Theft Auto on the PC that, uh, I think it's called the Carmageddon hack, it turns off friction, and so there's just these videos of, like, cars, when they get spawned, they have a vector, 
but they don't have any friction, so they'll enter the screen and just, like, clobber you over the head and bounce <laughs> off of walls and things. And whenever I'm having, a, like, a, just a stressful day, I go watch Carmageddon for, like, a couple rounds, and then I feel better because you just see people talking <laughs> But yeah, uh, that sounds like that sounds like uh, therapy right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good therapy. So, so next up, programming languages in the release engineering and DevOps space. We're going to talk about that on the ship show. back to the ship show so tonight we're gonna uh, be taking a look at the language space and release engineering and devops and uh specifically programming languages uh, a lot of times when we first proposed this topic i thought we were talking about like the words we use to talk about release engineering which is actually important but no we're talking about programming languages and what do we think the uh release engineering language de jure is and if that's changing and why it's changing so ej uh, you and i were talking about this during the break about what we think that is today, and you said that you thought the common denominator was Perl. Is that right? Did I have that right? I'm, I'm going to date myself here, but I'm sure if I go back and I think about early in my career, I remember spending a lot of time uh, with Perl, and then as time has gone on now, I think more recently I've spent probably equal parts in Groovy, Ruby, and Java at this point. Because you guys, you and Yusuf, were both talking about Groovy, and I, I'm sure I could Google it, but I'm lazy. What is Groovy? Yeah, so Groovy, um, in a nutshell, is basically kind of more of a scripted kind of version of Java. So you can import Java classes and do all the type of stuff that you can do with Java, but it's more scripty. So you can define like loosely typed data types. You don't have to explicitly uh, type your um, your variables, so it, it you know it adds that, and but it also gives you the option of like I said, you can Im- you can natively import Java classes. Kind of like Jython, where you can connect. You you can kind of sorta, yeah. Java. It's, it's less of a less of a bridge uh, between two languages and more of kind of a watered down version of Java. Okay, okay. So anyway, EJ, you were saying you spend a lot of time in Groovy and what were the other. Yeah, in Java. So, so Java making plugins, uh, Ruby in my happy little chef ecosystem, and then Groovy mainly to uh, manipulate Jenkins, right? Uh, some some automation bits, cleanup, maintenance, those kinds of things. Right. Well, so it's interesting you you were talking about. I I may date myself because you know I'm talking a lot about Perl. But what's interesting, like I maybe I'm dating myself as well. Uh, I, I I totally know what you're talking about. A lot of the environments, like their entire release engineering uh, infrastructure. I think I mean I think any environment or company that was founded before probably 2002. God, that, I'm old. What? <laughs> I'm old. Yeah, I know. I know. Any company before 2002 probably used Perl uh, or some combination of Perl shell script. I, I know Cisco was a big tickle shop because, you know, they were doing stuff like logging into their routers uh, and, and they needed expect. So they used a lot of tickle for that or whatever. So, but you know, what, what's interesting is that, and we were talking about this earlier as well, EJ, about how I think I sense a huge shift since about 2000. 2004. I mean, I used to do all my stuff in Perl, too, for release engineering stuff and other stuff. It was all Perl, but I think it's, for me, it seems to have shifted to Python 
And now there's been a pull towards Ruby as well, but I think that's driven largely by uh, Chef. Yeah, I, I, I guess I, I'm not sure who's I'm not sure where the uh, the epicenter is, but yeah, I think these sort of uh, CM systems are definitely moving the needle with regard to the different languages. Yeah, I have to agree with Paul. I mean, I, I I started off doing a lot of stuff, doing a lot of Perl programming. Um, in some ways, I I still prefer CPAN. Um, over whatever um, Python has to, to offer. I, I, I think it really just depends on what it is that you're going to be working on. I mean, I, I do, I think the main reason why I work with Python now is, um, you know, it's an object-oriented programming language, and I, I try to write more object-oriented code so that, you know, I can get reusable classes and stuff that other release engineers or other people in the organization can use. Yeah, you can write object-oriented Perl, but I don't want to go down that route. But in any... Why don't you like... <laughs> you said... You like CPAN better than Python. They they have something equivalent. Why why do you like CPAN better? I, just I, curious. I just think that that there's just a a larger breadth of modules, and I think CPAN works a lot better than PIP or Easy Install, or whatever it is that, that you use to install modules. Every time I've you know in my past when I've done stuff with you know Perl programming, every time I've used CPAN, it just works. I don't. Well, so, you know, what's interesting is that, uh, and I think that's actually, yeah. so I see the shift in languages for supporting projects. So so to kind of constrain our, our discussion, I mean, I think we're all talking about the language we, languages we use to write tools to do things that in some level you, you could have written a shell script for, but, and we can talk about that in a sec, but I mean, it's gluing parts of the system together, whether it be Jenkins to some na- or a legacy script. I've, I actually, that's a large, been a large part of what I do is taking legacy scripts and then gluing them together with something to get what you want or, or gluing ants. And I know EJ ant makes your head explode, but for people that use ant, like gluing ant to, stuff related to S3 and like Ant and S3, like they don't even know how to talk to each other because it was never a use case that you ever designed for. Um, So we're talking about those languages. But what I find interesting about that comment about CPAN is that you find Python kind of went for the entire kitchen sink in the standard library. So a lot of the modules like for XML parsing and HTTP networking, if you need to do that, are all part of the standard library. If you install Python and type import whatever, parsing zip files, I was doing that today, it, it's all shipped with Python. Whereas with Perl, the core language is relatively small, and the modules that ship with the standard Perl installation are relatively small. So it seems like they are, are just different models. The I was reading something about Python. They call it the batteries-included model, where all this stuff's written for you. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, I do agree with you on that point. I think my point about CPAN is just I... I I don't know, maybe maybe it's because I, I've only been doing stuff with Python for about two years now. But, you know, the rest of my career I've been doing stuff with Perl. And I, I just feel that getting stuff installed on your system using CPAN is, it just seems to be a lot easier, especially because I think that at some point in Python there was a jump between easy install to pip, and then there was this you know, whole conversation about that, and, and Perl has had you know CPAN fairly early on, I believe. But yeah, I, I, I do agree with you. I mean, the whole batteries included mantra, that, that's that's awesome. That's why I jumped over to Python, and I like not having to say, hmm, well, okay, how, what module do I need to import to uh, manipulate um, zip files or tarballs or whatever? Uh, no, oh, okay, it's, you know, pull up the Python documentation and, you know, import whatever the zip file or whatever the, the module is and, and go to use it as opposed to having to go out to CPAN and 
and installing it. But again, the thing, the key thing for me from a programming language, you know, for release engineering standpoint is, like I said, with Python, it's it's a it's a you know got a real clean object oriented kind of interface to it, and writing reusable classes that's a big that's a big thing for me. I think uh, in the uh, uh, Roll Your Own episode, I mentioned how for the current organization that I'm working or company that I'm working in, uh, I actually built kind of a custom um, installation framework, and it's you know written in Python. It's it's trying to use as many good uh, object-oriented principles as possible. But I've had other people in the organization take a look at it and say, oh, you know, I want to use this class or that class or extend it or, you know, that type of stuff. I'm not saying you can't do that with Perl, but I think the complexity level is a lot higher. Well, the, uh, so uh, it's funny. You were talking about why you shifted to Python, and I actually think this is why the industry shifted to Python. I remember one of the first jobs I had out of school that uh, we were working on um, – Anaconda, just written in Python. It's their installer for like Fedora, you know, where you select the you know, drives to partition and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of that code seemed really kind of thrown, or parts of it seemed kind of thrown together. Some of the partitioning logic, which we had to redo, seemed a little thrown together. But what was interesting to me is that Python code is so readable. You know, Perl, they like to say there's more than one way to do it, and they, that, that's like a value of, their, of the Perl language and of the Perl community is like the expressiveness of the language is great. And I, at some level, it's like I'm trying to get a job done. I'm not trying to write the next great Dickens novel. So expressivity in the language is not something I actually care about. I care about being able to read code that I wrote a week ago. Which And with Perl especially in a big environment if you've got like 15 people on a release engineering team and you have to share these scripts unless you're very strict in your yeah in, you use the strict module in Perl and you're very strict about your coding standards it's very easy to just have a bunch of like hairball tangled Perl code versus the Python mentality which is like there's five ways to do something pick one of the five and if you program Python long enough you'll know generally what all five of them are yeah. and, and you can read it. I also kind of like a lot of people, I, I had this conversation actually recently where someone was like, well, we don't want you to use Python. Well, they were like, they, we were talking about implementation languages and, and I was like, well, so have you guys used Python? And they're like, nah, I don't really want to use Python because there aren't any brackets. I, I don't like that it's white space blocks or white space delimited and that white space counts. And what's funny to me is that I remember thinking that when I was a big Curl guy, I was like, "Oh, there's no curly braces. Screw this." Yeah, um, but you get you get over it. And after a while, if you have a set of rules, style rules that your organization is using, it just makes it so much easier to read. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, I'm not a big Ruby guy, but I, I think Ruby has isn't white space delimited. So again, you have the, the one thing I really like about Python is it absolves that entire coding style manual debate because you you in some sense you kind of have to have one. Because you need to know, is indentation going to be tab delimited? Is it going to be three spaces, four spaces, whatever? And so you have to do that, otherwise your programs don't work. Whereas I can remember having a style manual is just standard good practice. It's it's one of these simple things that you go into this, these software shops and they just never do it because it's one of those hard cultural things. And it's hard telling engineers, like, I know you are used to KNRC, but that's not how we do it here and you need to do it the other way. So you see this in other languages where... Every module you look at could have a different style, and Python sort of gets around that by virtue of the way that it's, I don't know, I kind of like that. So do you guys think that kind of Ruby's taken over because of Chef? And I know Puppet, you can do, I don't know if you can write 
just straight Ruby, or if they have their own sort of Ruby-based DSL. But in any case, I mean, do you, do you think that's the case, that Ruby's kind of becoming the, the new hotness, so to speak, because of because of tools like um, Chef, and especially with the new infrastructure as code type phenomenon that's that's been cropping up the last few, or last couple of years, I guess? So I, don't, I don't know if, it, yeah, I think, those, I think those tools are definitely what, I think we said this in the beginning of sort of what's moving the needle, and I can also attest to, or confess maybe is a better word, to have in another life written a Rails-based app just for how easy it was to get it off the ground for sort of simple CRUD-type, you know, display-type app. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I guess, I guess they are probably responsible for this movement. Well, so what I find interesting is that, I mean, yeah, I think, I, I, I think they are. I, I don't think there's much much debate on that. The only reason people are looking at Ruby at all is because of Chef and Puppet and tools that used it. Having said that, and I actually had a conversation with Brian Berry. Uh, he was recently in town, and we had a chance to have... Actually, we had dim sum in Chinatown, uh, which was a funny experience. But anyway, um, he was talking about, you know, the interesting thing about that is that a lot of, like, with Chef, at least, you can be writing cookbooks and recipes that you don't know you're writing Ruby. Um, and so the fact that, uh, and this came up in the CF Engine interview with Mark Burgess, the DSL versus not having a DSL, it's like with Chef, I mean, you can, you, they, they've gotten it such that for the recipe part, it looks Ruby-esque because it is, but you can make DSLs and the language sort of supports that. Whereas with Python, it doesn't really have the, and I'm sure someone may argue with me on this, but but you don't see people really doing a lot of that unless they're going to write their own parser, right? It's not really part of the language. What's interesting is that, uh, and there's a talk, I'll, I'll see if I can dig it up, that I thought was funny called the Watt talk, and it was talking about weird features of languages, and they, they looked at Ruby and they looked at JavaScript. One of the things that allows you to do the DSL stuff in Ruby is that you can redefine certain things to be have weird properties, and that's how you do the DSL stuff. Python kind of, this goes back to discouraging that behavior. You, clarity is more important. And that's actually one thing that I find with Ruby. When I read the Ruby code, it takes me a little while to get into it. But I still think Python's a little clearer. And I and people will argue with that, and that's certainly a, a stylistic. It's an aesthetic, and that's fine. But I don't know that, I, I think part of the Python community values is readability is more important than fancy schmance like magic and i think it's possible to do fancy schmance magic in ruby and in fact there are parts of the ruby community that think that's really cool and awesome and when you're supporting i mean when you're trying to be operational and support things like that magic is not it's cutesy when you use it and it's not cutesy when it's 3 a.m and you're at your fourth deploy and it's all broken um and you can't figure out why and it's because someone thought they would be cutesy again Different styles, and I'm not saying one's better or worse, but I, I do think that Python pushes you down that road of, again, you only have five options to do a particular thing, five ways of doing something. And again, that's simplified, but question for both of you. Shell scripting hasn't come up. <laughs> so I... Files haven't come up, or what, PowerShell? I, I, I avoid that. I, I, don't, I don't want to talk about shell scripting. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so in another life, we had... a. A pretty monolithic uh, build, and there was unfortunately a not there was not a straight way to release stuff. And I will confess to have written I don't think maybe it was fifty lines, maybe it was hundred lines of uh, Bash shell script that became the Jenkins uh, driven release process for this particular project. So there, and 
I guess the reason why I chose Bash there at that particular company was they had written a whole bunch of Bash nightmare stuff in for manipulating their Sigwin environments. So it was sort of the, uh, this goes back to my original comment about the common denominator, right? So if I had done this all in Ruby, it would have been awesome for me and maybe two or three other guys, the particular place I was at. But that's not enough failover. And I, I knew from the get-go that I probably wasn't going to be there for five years. I was probably going to be there for a year and a half, two years, something like that. So I did it in the most common denominator, something that I could hand off to anyone in the company. Yeah. So yeah, that's the last time I, I did anything in Shell, and I'm still sort of ashamed about that. But it's, anyway, It is funny, the things that you see either batch files or shell scripts used for where, you know, it's somebody's like, oh, you know, I'll write a shell script for this and it's a 50-line thing and then it's like, oh, we need to support that. And then, you know, two years later, it's this, like, 5,000-line monstrosity that's horrible and not maintainable, but nobody, it's almost nobody wants to touch it or redo it because it's got so much... The requirements aren't written down anywhere. It's the script, and reading and wading through that is really hard. I, I actually do use Shell a lot on the command line for doing weird, you know, file manipulation and checksumming things quickly and doing comparisons. When I when I'm just doing it for my own, it's not you know, it's not part of the automation or anything. I, I'm just trying to get something done quickly. Actually, that's the one case where I still use Perl. Perl E or Perl NLE. We could write the shell script, and it would take the standard input and then do something with it. Uh, I, I still have to admit to using that. But with Shell, uh, I always call it the Shell wall, where there's a certain point at which you run into the Shell wall and you wish you would have implemented it in any other language. And it's always something stupid like, we didn't have any files with spaces in the file name, and now we do, and oh crap, all of, the, all of our Shell scripts broke because doing the quoting can be difficult, uh, if not impossible sometimes. So it's like one of those things that's it's interesting that you see Shell used, you know, you know, we were talking earlier about glue languages. You almost see Shell used as the duct tape when you can't find the super glue. So you try to duct tape it together, but it's this old, like, crusty duct tape that's going to fall apart or something, you know? So I, I have a rule for myself. If I have to write more than 10 lines of Bash or whatever Shell that I'm using, it's I'm going to stop. The only thing that I write shell scripts for are init scripts so if i'm trying to write like you know start up a, a java service or although there there are other tools you can use like java web start i think daemon tools which i think has a set of shell scripts and, and stuff that you can use to start your java services up but in you know in general uh, yeah more than 10 lines of bash or um whatever uh, i want to stop and bust out the uh the python or or maybe uh Perl. Yeah, I, I think that's actually a good rule. The other thing I've seen, which I find kind of interesting, is I, I can't tell you how many places I've seen foo.sh and maybe foo, you know, set up env, set env.sh or whatever it is, and right next to it in the tree, set env.bat. And it's because you had some people that refused to use Sigwin on their machines, so somebody writes a batch file for it, and you have some people that, like, I refuse to use, or I'm on Linux, or I'm on a Mac, so Shell works for me, and I don't care about, right, and invariably those things get out of date quickly from each other, because, you know, Mac and Linux guys don't care about the batch file, and batch people don't care about the, right? So having kind of a policy of, like, nobody writes, we're not writing batch files, and we're not writing Shell scripts, uh, except in very narrow cases that everybody kind of understands, and then you use something like Ruby, where there's where there are interpreters for all the platforms, and Python and Perl both have great support for like simple things like the the path separator, 
you can actually get to that easily. Whereas in Shell, it's people seldom do that, right? You know. Yeah. So what? Uh, have you guys ever done anything with like PowerShell on on the Windows side? Does anybody have any experience with that? Or so I'm going to make a snarky comment. I haven't, but the one article that I did read, and this was probably, geez, like when PowerShell came out, so probably a year or so ago, it was a, an example, and it was like, here's how you copy a bunch of files around, but they were trying to show the fact that it's all object-oriented, and you can use you can use like the common interfaces to the operating system if you wanted to do that, so that you can manipulate the GUI programmatically, like they allowed you to do that kind of stuff. So they're trying to show, like, if you wanted to copy these files from one directory to another you wanted to use it through explorer right so they were, i get that it was an example but what was funny to me is it was like 200 lines to do something that would take like four lines of bash and it, i think this article was linked to from slash out so that was like the first comment was like powershell 20 2008 equals bash 1976 or something like that but i've never used it and so and that's interesting i've never seen i've never been in an environment where i've seen it it's always been batch files yeah the, the only cool thing that i've seen with powershell is uh, a buddy of mine who works for botworks scott uh, he actually wrote a unit testing framework for powershell called pester and look it up on github and he actually was out here in san diego i think about a year ago and demoed it to me it's um you know pretty neato stuff he i guess for some time um, was doing a lot of uh, sort of DevOps type stuff with PowerShell on the Windows side. So, but yeah, I don't know. I've never had to write anything on uh, uh, or for Windows. But I was just kind of curious what if any if either you or uh, EJ had any exposure to that. It's it seems like PowerShell is almost too late to the game, and what I mean by that is it has all of this extra stuff that you can like talk to .NET and you can talk to com objects and you can talk to the GUI and you can do all, you can script all these things. And I guess if you're a Microsoft shop, that would matter. But even, you know, everything has moved to like Ruby on Rails, OpenStack, Heroku, whatever, and, and web services, remote web services, where you're not really actually talking to a GUI anyway. So the point being that batch files were horrible, but everybody used them for like 30 years. And now the focus has moved to web where you don't even need to manipulate the GUI that way anyway. And and I, I I mean, I would actually love to hear from listeners on Twitter, like, what are you, who is using PowerShell? What are you using it for? I'd be curious because I haven't seen it used. EJ, I kind of cut you off. Have you ever seen it used anywhere? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I've, yeah. I have no, no use of PowerShell. I, I know previously uh, some QA guys have used it to automate some post configuration steps, but beyond that, I didn't. But I, I guess what I, I guess what I was sort of jumping on here is that the, 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 the need for that when there is something like Bash, and again, you sort of highlighted it, saying that uh, if you are this Microsoft shop, then most likely you are just going to use PowerShell everywhere. Yeah, yeah. If you, and again, though, if you're not using Batch, because here's the problem: it came so late to the game that. If you have, if you're an old Microsoft shop, well, I mean, let's say you're like fi- you're 15 years into your company and your Microsoft shop, you've already written most of the stuff you need in the bat in batch files, right? So, I I don't know. I would anyway. I- I'll leave it at that. I would love to hear PowerShell users. I would love to hear some real world PowerShell user stories. Yeah. 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 Scott, I- if you're if you're listening to this, uh, definitely type in on on that. Yeah, definitely. Be great to hear from him. Um, what, I had another question for you guys. What what, what so what do you guys think? I mean, domain specific languages. Or just a vanilla programming language for um, release engineering, DevOps type stuff. EJ? So I'm going to talk about it in terms of what I've seen with regard to my Chef experience, right? So the Chef, the standard DSL is beautiful and it's wonderful. And 
I find myself most recently reinventing the wheel and getting frustrated and tearing it all out just to find out that the the simplest things in Chef already have a ton of functionality built into it. So I think there are some places for that, but there's also places where it's nice that in Chef's case, you can just drop into raw shell code or raw Ruby code and just do whatever you need to do to get something done instead of stopping and write, writing like lightweight resource provider or something like that. So I, I don't know. I think they each have their own their own raison d'etre, but for sure I like I like DSLs. I think it just makes life easier, but I don't know, that's just me. Well, so that's interesting because I would actually say generic programming language. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that, Paul. Well, and here, here's why. So, and this may actually be showing a little bit of lack of knowledge on my part. So, so I actually think the DSL is useful for a very narrow use case. So, so doing machine configuration almost is actually pushing the edge of what is a narrow use case because that is kind of a huge space. But I, I think it's been reduced to like the common things you need to do. Here's, I guess, my thing about a DSL. There's a couple things. A DSL, you have to learn it, and it's not portable to anything else. That may be okay. You know, there's the Chef community, as an example, is huge. So, so if, like, if you're in this space, you really need, that's one of the skills you need to learn. But it's not a portable skill to Puppet. It's not, I mean, the concepts are, but the DSL isn't. It's not a portable skill to uh, the whatever Windows auto deployment stuff is. I know it has a name, and it's, I'm blanking on it right now. But it's not. It's not useful. It's not portable to that. So you got You need to be sure. Like it's only going to be useful to you for that one particular thing. The other thing is that I find in release engineering, the the set of tasks that you have are you know, pretty common. I used to make the joke that that my job as a release engineer was make and copy, make make the run make and then run copy to copy the things around. So, I mean, I think there are a general set of use cases. But the problem is, uh, and, and you find this, organizations think are you, our release process is unique and what we do is different. I actually think that's going away. I think a lot of people are like, hey, let's, you know, let's use Heroku or let's use OpenStack or let's kind of use whatever the Ruby deployment, uh, Capistrano or whatever it is. Let's do that instead of doing it ourselves. But even when you start to get to scale... And you have different problems, you know. Sometimes you always have to do something a little weird. The best DSLs have you dropping, have, give you the ability to drop into something, but then at that point you're drop, you know, you've dropped into a generic programming language again, or it's either that, or you know, you need to go get an additional module to add that functionality to the DSL because somebody's written some GitHub plugin for whatever for Chef, and now it adds the ability to do these particular things to the, the DSL. So. I guess my answer would be I'm more of a fan of the generic programming language. But having said that, I am a huge fan of, of sort of frameworks. And so what I mean by that is one of the uh, projects I work on is a project called Quick Release. It's in Python. And I use it for even things that I used to do in shell scripting just because it supports unit testing of the particular process that I'm writing. And so the thing is, is that it forces me, even though it's it's just Python, you're just writing raw Python, it forces me to think about the problem in a more uh, reliable way. And so when I hear people saying, I'm going to go write a Python script or a shell script, are you going to catch all the air conditions? You know, are you going to, you know, are you going to do something where you can 
unit test the work that you're doing when the script is over? Can you make preconditioned and postconditioned assertions about the script? So whether it's it's quick release as a framework or any other framework, I like where the framework kind of prompts you to do stuff that we all know we should be doing anyway. But sometimes it's easy to be like, oh, I don't have time for this, or I'm just going to write a quick ten line script, and then three years later, that's a four thousand line script, and that's your release harness. But it doesn't support any of the things that you invariably end up needing to do when it's 4,000 lines. Like, I just need to run these 10 lines because it failed or something like that. Yeah, Paul, you know, I, I think you really, really brought up a really a good point about the unit testing thing. You know, with a DSL, if testing is not built into it, how do you how do you work around that? So I'm, I'm not really in favor of domain-specific languages for the reasons that you mentioned. And the idea that, you know, obviously with companies, you're going to have people coming and going and it's a lot easier to go out there and say, okay, I want to find some DevOps folks who know Ruby or um, maybe somebody who's, you know, an up-and-coming type, you know, junior mid-level person who got some exposure to Ruby uh, as opposed to, like, some specific DSL. I think that's something to, to keep in mind when choosing, you know, a, a DSL as opposed to a, a, just a generic programming language. Yeah, actually, so EJ... Before I, before I totally... I can, I can totally see your points, guys. But I just want to give you one example. And, and wait, before we go any further, the, I think the other thing too is that the DSLs are pretty simple. So I don't feel like there's this massive mind shift if you wanted to go from Puppet to Chef or from one of these things to CF Engine or something like that, right? Number one. But number two, so here's, here's a good example of what I was saying before. It takes away some of the complexity. So I was trying to transfer a file from our Nexus server and pull it down locally, right? And it's a a foo-1.0-snapshot.war, right, for some continuous deployment stuff that I'm working on. And I tried to build in all this thing where it would look at the remote file and use the header that's been turned to try and calculate if the thing has changed. And finally, I'm just like, you know what? Forget it. I can't, I'm not going to be able to do this successfully. I'm just going to pull down the file. And then I watched as Chef, with minimal configuration, just say where you want the file to be written, where you want the file to come from, and nothing else. And I watched this Chef pulled it down, tried to pull it down a second time, and said, oh, you know what? The, the uh, checksums of these two files are identical. There are no changes. I will not do anything else. I wrote zero, I wrote like three lines of code to do that. And you really stop to think about what that cookbook would have looked like if you had to write the raw Ruby. I don't want to maintain that. I don't want to merge that. I don't want to be on the hook for that. Being able to just look at this three lines of code that says, here's the remote file where I want it to be written to. Here's the source for it and end. Right. This is the end of this remote file block. I think that is just so much nicer to manage than all the the functionality that went behind that lightweight resource provider. Yeah, just- well, that, that's true. But in some sense, if you have again, if you have a framework in Python, let's say, or Perl, doesn't matter. If that's a common use case for it, you're, there's going to be a function for it, and so you're just going to call the function. And so you can have the same sort of thing. I, I guess. Are you saying that? If you have a generic programming language, people using it are going to try to want to are going to tend to solve that problem by writing code as opposed to a DSL where the DSL you can go look at the manual of the DSL and it has these functions for you. Because I could see that I could totally see that where the mindset's a little different. So again, like when I first tried to do this, I just started by writing code, trying to make it happen, and then eventually I just threw in the towel and let Chef do its thing. What were you writing? What I was going to do without me having to write any code. But what were if that's a fault of the instruction manual more than anything else at this point, but uh, I I don't know. I just don't want to manage code in this point in time in my life. But what were you writing? 
Yeah, but the, the DSL versus the raw Ruby code is what I'm saying. Like to do the same sort of stuff. Like if you were to look at the code for the uh, lightweight lightweight resource provider, there's a lot more code than the three lines that I had to write. Right. 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 So that's that's what was my question. Is that so? You were gonna go write a bunch of Ruby stuff that Chef was gonna call, and then you found a, a DSL that that did that. Is that that's my understanding, right? I'm using Chef's DSL, and I was dropping to raw Ruby to do some of these calculations, and it found out that I didn't have to do that. Okay. I just tore out all the Ruby code and just used the lightweight resource provider, which is a Chefism. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, and I think, I mean, to, to Yusuf's point about DSLs versus generic programming languages, the flip side is that if you have a DSL and you have a big enough community supporting it, and I think Chef is a great example, then you're going to have more use cases. And we talked about this in an earlier show with uh, Row Your Own. It's like if, if you have a big enough community to support weirder use cases, then, yeah, it's going to be easier and that stuff's going to be unit tested and that's great if you can do that. If you are doing weirder stuff, doing firmware, or doing other weird things, a generic programming language actually may be better. I don't know. Before we go too far off, like, there, there are unit testing frameworks for Chef. And I know I keep talking about Chef because it's what I'm using. Uh, I'm sure they exist for Puppet and other tools. And on top of that, there are other things too, like you were talking about code quality before. There's something called Food Critic, and it will rip through your cookbooks and tell you some of Chef's best use cases and where you're breaking those use cases. So, And the way you typically wire this all together is that you have some Jenkins job monitoring source control, and depending on how your unit tests and if Food Critic has found any problems, then and only then will upload your cookbook to the master server where it's consumable by any of your deployment mechanisms. So there is this nice life cycle, and just because you're using a DSL doesn't mean you can't have these things. I guess it just depends on how well adopted your tooling is right yeah yeah well, <laughs> tool out there that has its own dsl that does something like chef that has none of these things right i'm sure that's an easy thing to do so let me ask you this so if you're let's say you guys are all interviewing up here uh, i was gonna say release engineer but maybe it's not maybe it's a devops person what language would you want them to know me me personally yeah, well, I mean, in the role that you're in, uh, if you were writing the job description, I mean, what languages do you think it's important for release engineers or DevOps people to know? Or how would you write that? Like, all the job recs always say something. What, how would you write that statement? I don't know. You've got, you've just got to be a jack-of-all-trades. That's what I'm in. That, that, that's the kind of person I'm, I'm interested in working with. So we hired a guy a long time ago in another life. We hired a guy, and we moved him from San Francisco or L.A. area, I forget, some part of California, to Massachusetts. And we hired him just because... He was a jack-of-all-trades. He had never written a line of Java code. And within the first couple of months, we had thrown him into the deep end of the pool. And I granted, I was holding his hands a little bit. But he was helping write some complex ATG-based Maven 2 plugins. It just You have to have this willingness to try, willingness to explore. You have to have this curiosity. And I don't know. I don't know how you would write the job rec for that. I wasn't part. I wasn't part of that discussion when you guys did that. Um, and I was really intrigued to hear what you guys had to say. But I look for people that I don't want to see you have 300 years of Ruby experience, right? If you could, because then everything is going to look like a nail to you, right? Right. I want to see that you've done this thing and you've tinkered with this in your spare time. You write you know, assembly code for I don't know what, and you just like play around with all these different technologies. That makes an awesome fit. And, and to me, I, I would work really well with somebody like that because I know that I have some strong points and I could probably offset their weak points, right? And vice versa. I have some, definitely, I'm 
human. I'm, I'm very flawed. I'm sure they could offset some of my weak points. So that, that's what I would look like personally, or look for personally. Yusuf? Yeah. Um, I, I think I'd have to, to say, you know, I, I do agree with EJ, but I think experience with a, a strictly typed language, you know, Java, C, C++, whatever, and, you know, something, one of the, the scripting um, variants, Ruby, Python, PowerShell, that's kind of what I'm looking for, yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I actually, not a lot of dissent here. I agree with both of you. Yusuf, I think, I think it's important to have a, a scripting language, so, and not a DSL, a scripting language. So Python, Ruby, even Perl, even though I think it's, it's, personally, I think it's going out of style. I think it's really important to have a compiled language background, and I, I don't care if it's Java or .NET or C, C++, but uh, a sense of those tools and what to expect when you're working with those tools and how they're different than working with, like, the Python interpreter. EJ, you mentioned something. I actually think it's important to understand, uh, at least to have a, a very uh, high-level understanding. You talked about assembly, an assembler, to even have a sense that, like, even if it's Java, that there's an interme- intermediate representation of the code. And, you know, this comes up every once in a while in, like, C++ error messages where you see the big long error message and, and it's a name mangled symbol and, and to know like why is it why is there name mangling and you know what's the history behind that that's a bit of trivia but to know the fact that that there's an assembler involved and how it actually gets to the machine and what how that kind of works uh, I think is important because it comes up in random use cases and then also though uh, I think I, I separate bash shell or batch scripting or even PowerShell out of scripting languages. I think they're kind of their own thing. And I say that because if you do any batch or bash shell scripting, you're really using all of the tools on the system. So Python to get a list of files, you know, there's a function called to do that. But in bash, if you want to get a list of files in a directory, you're going to use ls or you're going to use find. And that skill set is different from generic programming language because you're going to do it a little differently. And then lastly, I mean, and this is kind of off topic, but um, all of the all of the pro- the scripting languages often have basically thin wrappers around the C library. Like if you don't know the common calls in the C library, you should know them, um, be just because they show up in scripting languages all the time. Even if they're, you know, Perl is is often called a loose wrapper around the C library. So that, I think that's really helpful to have that knowledge because uh, it comes up. So, well, uh, we'll probably talk about uh, this again. I know uh, in one of the conversations, uh, somebody mentioned Go, and and so since this uh, landscape is always changing, I'm sure at some point in the future we'll see what new language that isn't even doesn't even exist yet. Maybe is uh, taking release engineering by storm with that new uh, uh, new DevOps tool that everybody's using. So, anyway, back in a moment on the ship show. All right, well, welcome back to The Ship Show. So for our last segment tonight, we're going to be doing a tooltip on uh, SSHFS, which is a fuse module that makes it easy to uh, transparently mount remote file systems over SSH. We actually talked talked about fuse in a previous show. I think we talked about it, came up in News and Views. Oh, because we were looking at the, the GitFS, which is another um, fuse file system. Um, but we wanted to talk about SSHFS because it turns out that it's, it's one of those tools that's... Surprisingly useful in a lot of interesting cases, and in fact, it's so useful that it's easy to rely on it in ways you probably shouldn't. So, 
the first thing you need to do if you want to use any of the Fuse file systems, there's Fuse packages for most of the, the modern distros. So just go uh, and grab the Fuse deb or, or uh, in, in my fun Gentoo land, the, the Fuse ebuild. Fuse itself uh, consists of a kernel module, so you need to have those settings on in the kernel uh, config. And again, most distros have it turned on as an available module by default. Uh, and then there's a user space component to it that, that is what you swap out the different modules, so for GitFS or SSHFS. SSHFS is, is super useful because basically it makes a remote system that you have SSH access to, which is oftentimes like my machine at home if I'm out at a coffee shop or whatever or if uh, you know I'm I've got a machine in a colo and and all I have the only open port to it is is SSH it allows you to mount any part of that file system just by talking to SSH so you don't unlike NFS or SIFS you don't need to have any of those ports open you don't need to have any of the if you're used to SIFS the the net bias name announcement port stuff if you can SSH you can get uh, remote access to those th that file system and make it look like a local file system. Um, you can also actually do Fuse for the Mac. So if you have a Mac you and you have like a Linux box at home or something like that, you can also mount machine remotely on your Mac, which is also super cool. So I use it all the time because there are lots of... I used to actually use NFS. Obviously, uh, over wireless, that's totally not secure at all. NFS, if it's not in TCP mode, if it's in UDP, it's also uh, not as reliable. And so, you know, SSH FS has been super valuable for that sort of thing. Have you guys... Do you guys uh, use SSH FS at all? No, I, I do things the hard way. I use VPN. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> that's actually another reason why SSH... It's It's kind of like... You know, I would do VPN if I had more services I needed to transparently have work. But if you just need file access, it's super simple for that. Seth, do you have you used it? I have used it before. I don't use it a lot now just because I, I think back then I was using, it was just the editors I was using where I, I, I you know, I started... You know, I started, I tried Vim once in, in college and then I just kept using but, uh, so I just, I just started editing in, you know, like via, you know, like using like Tmux and Vim together. So I don't, I, I haven't found it as useful anymore. Um, I don't even think I have Fuse installed right now. Yeah. I Fuse use it all the time. The, so uh, a lot of people that they complain about Fuse in general is because it is, because part of the utility does run in user space, there's a lot of copying of memory blocks from across the user space, kernel space, because you have to, you know, copy the bits from the SSH user land process over to make into kernel space to make it look like a file system mount with the, the virtual file system stuff. Despite all of those copies, and yeah, it's kind of an ugly hack. I totally agree. SSHFS is kind of an ugly hack. But actually, at home, I have a, a ThinkPad that I use for a lot of my work stuff. And, you know, I have it. That's what's connected to, like, my uh, array of monitors. And then I have a machine that's headless that is where I store all of my source code repositories and mail and all of that kind of stuff, and it gets backed up on all that. I actually edit the podcast using SSHFS, and it works surprisingly well. It's super easy to have a, a mount in, that gets exported via SSHSF, SSHFS. That's hard to say. And if it's across a switch like I have it, it's not as fast as having it on the disk, but it's it's on par with NFS. and might even be faster than NFS. I've, I've never really actually tested it because I haven't had to. 
One word of warning with SSHFS, and I made this mistake because I was using it, I found it so useful and I was using it so much that I actually started using it. I, was, I think I was at a client site and I was on their wireless and their wireless was kind of janky and it was dropping out and they were trying to get that fixed. But I was trying to use, I was trying to just edit some files. I was like, I'm going to be fancy and SSHFS mount my home machine and then you know just do VI and edit some stuff. And what I realized is that if your connection is not reliable or prone to dropping out, if the SSH backing for the connection drops out, you'll start getting these weird VFS errors. And so VI, because it does like kind of sort of automatic backups of the file, right? If those file handles just drop, then a lot of times like VI will freak out. It'll be like, well, okay, I have the content of the file you're editing, but the undo backing file you know, the .back file or that .swap file, went away. The handle for it went away, and uh, my world is falling apart. I think, I think that may have been something that got me to stop using it, that very thing, because it was like under, under unreliable connections, or over unreliable connections, it was kind of like, oh, crap, this is like, my text editor is freaking out now. Right. Yeah, yeah. So that is one use where it's not, like, totally not, not I, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, but in those, like like I said, if, you're, if you've got something simple like a, cross, a switch or like wireless in my house, it's great for that. Uh, it's also great, like in that case, I have used it, I'm a little more cautious about that because it was hard to recover the, the stuff I was typing because VI kind of freaked out so much. But if you're just trying to grab files real quickly and you know the, the wireless is like re, like reliable enough for a copy there's not you know it's it's a pretty simple operation you can do that of course you could always also use as copy but if you're doing something more complicated where you have like a fine command that's copying certain things out of the mount area uh, it's super useful for that so yeah if, it, it's one of those things where it, it you know follows the unix philosophy of do one thing and do it well and it's great for this very narrow use case and it's perfect at that, and then it, it has some shortcomings for other things, but it can still get you out of a pinch if you've got certain requirements, like you need to complex find command, and it's just easier to do it as an actual file system. So yeah, go ahead and check it out. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to be a, a masochist and, and continue on with VPN. So you know, <laughs> so you know it's funny? So a, a great example, I have setups where I needed to use... Uh, like web, and then there's also like a VMware client tool thing that uses weird ports, and I need to transfer files, so it's totally, that's an example of, I would totally, you know, set up and use VPN. If it, And also, if it's already set up, like, I didn't want to have to set up VPN. If you have, like, corporate IT people that, that set up your v, the server side for you and then give you the instructions to do it on the client side, like, I would do that, but I didn't want to have to deal with all the keys and stuff, so... So I was lazy and did SSHFS. So uh, we've got one more show left in the year. And, and as I mentioned at the beginning of the, the show, uh, this show, we're going to be talking about release engineering during the holidays and uh, on-call duty and all that kind of stuff. We're going to sit back, have some hot apple cider. The crew will have some hot, hot apple cider and, and uh, discuss that and maybe have some, some Christmas music to go with it. So uh, look forward to that in the, in the next couple of weeks. As always, you can uh, follow us on Twitter at ShipShowPodcast.com and send a comments and feedback about uh, anything to there or to crew at, sh- at theshipshow.com. And so from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. And from Austin, this is Seth signing off. We'll see you in a couple of weeks.